Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Cool. So, uh, hey, as we uh, look at this message... One, it was so good to be with you on Good Friday. Those of you that were there with us, it was wonderful. Uh, we're sorry we were unable to stream that. We just didn't have the signal that we needed to pull that off. Um, so those of you that missed it, unfortunately missed it. But those of you that were with us, it was great to be together. And the message is really just going to sort of uh, continue on from there in a sense. Uh, looking at, uh, of course, the, the following on of the story, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And where I want to start with it, um, and I feel like this is important for us to do constantly uh, is for us to just look at the evidence for the resurrection. Because if you look at it, it's actually quite an outrageous claim, isn't it? It's quite an outrageous claim that historians over the years have looked at and they've, and they've sort of questioned. And maybe you're here and you're uh, new to faith. Maybe you, you have just sort of maybe committed your life to Jesus recently. We want you to be more deeply anchored, more confident in the truth of this that you've heard. Uh, maybe you're somebody who's uh, grown up in the church and you've been through our youth program and our Sunday school program and you're coming out into, into college years and you're going into a place where those beliefs are going to be questioned in that system as well. We want you to have a strong foundation. And if you've been in the faith for like ever and you're ancient of days, like really old, uh, we want you uh, to actually have an alive and a vibrant faith. We don't want you to be desensitized to this story. We want to be awake to it and alive to it, right? And passionate about it. And so I just want to lay down as we begin just a little bit of evidence uh, for the resurrection. There's a number of different ways to talk about it. But one of the things that, that I love is just a, what, what they call the this basically a simple facts argument or the few facts argument. There are a few things that critical scholars, people who wouldn't believe that they're Christian, wouldn't, wouldn't call themselves Christians, who wouldn't necessarily believe in the whole Christian package, but historians and scholars who look at the resurrection of Jesus and look around it, and there are some facts that they acclaim as truth, even though they don't necessarily uh, believe the whole story. Uh, they're up on your screen there, but I just want to walk through them really quick. And then we're going to get into the book of Romans and look at Paul's expectation practically for what the resurrection means for people living going forward. Now, we know the resurrection means eternal resurrection, the new heaven and the new earth come, and we uh, get to live in glorified, resurrected bodies with him. So we as Christians believe in the bodily resurrection. But what I want to talk about uh, later on in the message is what does it mean for us as we live today? What does it mean for us in the day-to-day? -day? So not to take anything away from what's happening with us uh, in eternity, I want us to know how that affects us as we live and walk our lives today. So that's the outline of the message. Uh, so that first sort of simple fact that most sort of critical historians will look at is, of course, uh, they believe that Jesus Christ was actually alive. He actually existed and was crucified. There's lots of historical evidence for that that happened, evidence outside even of the scriptural accounts. We have people like Josephus and Pliny the Younger and other people who are writers who have looked at and lived in as historians in that time, and they know of a person named Jesus who lived and who was executed and killed uh, in the Holy Land in that time. So that's something that 
people who are critical of Christianity don't actually dispute. Amazing, right? Um, it's really good to have a foundation for his resurrection is believing that he died. So that's, that's just sort of a helpful uh, starting point. Um, disciples, the second thing is disciples uniformly claimed that they had seen the risen Jesus. So that means two things. One, the disciples, uh, everybody who knew Jesus in and around that time frame, uh, they all said the same thing about him. When we look at the stories of the resurrection and we look at the linguistics of them, the way they're constructed, there's not any confusion about what the disciples actually meant. They didn't mean that they'd seen a disembodied spirit. They didn't mean that they'd seen a ghost. They didn't mean that they'd had a dream about him. They didn't mean that they had hoped to see him again. The language is very clear from all of the stories that they believe that they actually saw the risen body of Jesus. And secondly, that is uniform throughout them. Through all of the disciples who went all over the world telling the story, none of them dissented from that story. None of them later on recanted it, even under torture and pain and death and made up other, uh, other explanations for what happened. So this, this amazing group of people uniformly sort of told the same story. When we sort of uh, try to debunk a conspiracy theory, like say the Twin Towers were done by the American government, you look at that and say, okay, there would have to be thousands of people involved in that deception. And not one of them could break ranks and tell the true story. And that is just completely improbable. It's completely improbable. I watched a conspiracy theory video just last week to see what was fresh and new, just for kicks and giggles, because there's lots of them around. And one of the latest conspiracy theories is that uh, the government uh, has put snake venom in the water, and COVID is not actually a virus. It's actually snake venom that the government has put in the water. And somehow they've got it out to all of the towns and villages and municipalities, and they're all putting it in their water. And somehow they got it in all of the well water as well for people. Like the number of people that would have to participate in something like that and not break ranks and not tell uh, that that story happened in a different way. It's just completely improbable, especially in the age of social media, that somebody wouldn't have opened their mouth and blabbed it. Right? So it's the same with the resurrection. The story was uniformly told what actually happened. And nobody, nobody made up another story. Nobody came up with another story except for... Uh, a few Roman officials that are mentioned right in the text. The biblical authors mention in their writing of the story the idea that was put out there that, hey, they, they were just going to steal the body. They said, hey, let's let that theory be out there. We'll be the ones who say it because we know it's not true and it doesn't hold up. So there's an incredible uh, a uniformity. And so most historians look at the resurrection of Jesus and say, at least we know that the disciples believed it. There's, I don't know if I believe it, but we know that they believed it. That's for sure. The second uh, fact that the resurrection rests on is that it was proclaimed very early. So I remember in high school, I had a teacher who told me that uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the whole Christian thing, that was just made up after the fact by Paul. How many of you heard that in a university class or high school class somewhere? Uh, it's just one of the ideas that's out there sort of in the ether, um, that Paul just made this whole thing up and reconstructed it afterwards, right? And so I remember my high school teacher telling me that, and I remember, you know, I was thinking it's grade 11 history or something like that. I'm like, that just doesn't make sense. That can't be true. So I went and looked and found out that in Syria and in Egypt, there were existing 
copies of creeds, existing outlines of the Christian story, and that we had lit, like manuscript evidence of them existing in places outside of Israel before Paul even began to speak. So that story is a story that has veracity because, you know, sometimes when we say like Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey, we have 900 years between the time it was told and the time it was written down. But with the gospel story, we have manuscript evidence from within immediate decades around when that actually happened. So the story, the writings about the story are very close to it. Uh, the fourth uh, thing is that narrative uh, relied on specifically named eyewitnesses and places. So the way the biblical authors wrote the story, and we, we, we noted as we read the story, the testimony of the women, like that's remarkable in that day and time, the trust in the testimony of the women. Like it's, a, it's amazing that Jesus' respect for women had translated to the disciples and that they were trusted eyewitnesses to the gospel story where they wouldn't have been trusted in a court of law back in that space and time. But here in the writings of the apostles who respected and loved women, uh, their testimony was central and valuable. Um, so that's amazing that the story of Mary and all of those women were there. Um, but we look at it and we see um, all kinds of specific people in specific places named in the gospel accounts, in Paul's writings, in Peter's writings, in James, uh, where they basically are saying, these are the people that saw it. If you get a chance, go talk to them and ask them about it. If they were making up a story that had happened, if Paul was just kind of making this thing up, he wouldn't have given people the links back to talk to the eyewitnesses. Anybody who had heard the story of the resurrection of Jesus could go and talk to Jesus' brother, Jesus' cousins, uh, Jesus' relatives, and say, hey, hey, what, what, were you there? Did you see that thing? And, and there's, a, there's an incredible book called Jesus uh, and the Eyewitnesses by a man named Bauckham, who uh, actually, in an incredibly beautiful way, details all of these connections and relationships and creates a, basically a family tree of people who were at the resurrection and were available to be consulted so that the story could be verified. So most uh, people who are uh, you know, historians um, look at that and say, there's evidence there. And then the fifth thing, which is where we're going to really spend our time in terms of this message, is that the beliefs of the believers were inexplicably resilient. Like beyond, like torture and death and persecution and having their property taken from them and being thrown in jail and whipped, none of them recanted the story under that pressure. There's an incredible resilience to it, um, and an incredible, uh, a very interesting thing in terms of their behavior. You know, Jesus wasn't uh, the first Messiah-type character that was in the Holy Land. There were dozens of them in and around that time period, and even after, after that time period. There were lots of Jewish leaders who rose up at various times uh, to say that we're going to try to overthrow the Roman Empire. And whenever those uh, leaders um, rose up, what would happen is they would gain a following, they would go on some various military campaigns, they would take out a Roman outpost here or there, or they would try to take over of Herod's palace or something like that. Uh, they would begin a movement and they would start to act in their, in their culture. And then what happened is they invariably got caught and got killed. And what happens when uh, your Messiah gets killed? Either your movement dies or you go find a new leader for it. 
So what happened in all of these in interesting movements, so uh, Simon of Perea in uh, 4 BC, he was a former slave of Herod the Great, he rebelled, he was killed by the Romans. And Throges, uh, a shepherd who turned rebel leader, apparently he, he took leadership because he was this incredibly strong and fit and tall person who just stood up among his culture in terms of his physical stature and strength, uh, put together a small army and engaged in a number of battles. This is recorded in a number of historical sources. And at the time, about uh, three, uh, so when Jesus was about three years old, um, he was destroyed by Herod Archelaus. He was finally captured and, and destroyed in his movement died, and all of his followers went and found other, other leaders to follow. Uh, Menahem ben Judah, who is allegedly the son of Judas of Galilee, uh, partook in a revolt, a revolt against Agrippa too. So that's closer to the time of Jesus, right? Um, and he was actually killed by other zealots. He was taken out by competing messiahs. And what happened to his movement? It died and it disappeared, and people went on and found other leaders and did other things. The remarkable thing about what happened with the Christians is that after their Messiah died, for some inexplicable reason, they went on about their business. They continued on with the mission. They continued on with the story. They continued doing uh, the movement. They'd been gloriously saved by what Jesus accomplished on the cross and, and acted as though Jesus was still with them. Uh, they claimed to be empowered by his Holy Spirit. Uh, they had a relationship that was restored, and, and it translated into them living radically different lives in their culture. Uh, they, they, their behavior was transformed in a way that can't be explained by a dead Messiah. It can only be explained by a living one. They continued uh, with growing in holiness. They lived with a radically different sexual ethic. Uh, they lived with a radically different attitude towards marriage and towards faithfulness and towards family compared to the Roman culture. They were passionate about meeting together everywhere they went. They just couldn't stop getting together in spite of the pressure in the temple courts, in Solomon's colonnade, in homes, in synagogues. They just kept gathering and meeting and meeting together. Uh, they evidenced deep covenantal commitment in relationship and had an incredible passion for unity. Um, they were living in radical generosity, selling their property, selling their homes, sharing with the poor, bringing everybody to uh, a level of, of an equal standard of living within the community. Uh, they carried on with their mission to spread the news of Jesus. They went and preached it uh, in Syria, in Egypt, uh, to, to the east, uh, Paul going up to Asia Minor, uh, all over the world. For some reason, they had something inside them, an engine that was running, power that was being generated, strength that was filling them, that they had energy, and they went out and somehow continued to do this. And, and the only thing that can really explain this is that their Messiah was still alive and still with them, still empowering them, still speaking to them. What he'd said was true, and he was living among them. The resurrection uh, propelled the early Christians forward to live out the redeemed lives that they'd received and to begin to reshape and remake the world. The evidence for the resurrection is that it turned the world absolutely on its head. 
And if you look at historian Tom Holland, who's, a, who's an atheist um, and flirting with Christianity on, on a really interesting journey, if you follow his story at all, uh, he looks back at Christianity and he says, you know, as I looked back through history, I looked back at the world and I saw that in the time of Rome, the world was harsh and brutal and violent and vile and evil. It is, it, it, it is not the world we live in today where we see medicine and kindness. Even though we're, we're divorcing all of this stuff from Christianity in our time right now, um, the, the, the absolute difference between what we are as a society and what Rome was as a society it is unbelievable, the darkness and the violence. And when Tom Holland, this atheist historian, looks back at the world, he says the only, what, what changed it, what made the difference was absolutely Christianity. It was Christianity that changed the world. The resurrection of Jesus turned the world on its head. It is, it is a shame that we're abandoning that in our culture now. We're in for a wild ride. But the church is still called, in the midst of that, to be the church. To build an alternative society that lives in a radically different way. That has a high sexual ethic. That has a high value on marriage and family. Uh, all of these things that I just listed. That's who we still are because the resurrection life of Jesus lives inside of us. We are to live and to be different. Not just uh, waiting for heaven to come. But the resurrection means something for us now. And that's what we see in Paul's teaching in Romans. We looked at the Good Friday service at Romans 3, uh, looking at this sort of the, how the redemption works a little bit and how God is glorified through it. Uh, but looking at some other texts on, on tying the redemption, tying uh, the sacrifice of Jesus to the resurrection, uh, we see that in, in a very practical way, there are some things that are meant to be different about our lives that end up expressing themselves in the way we live. The resurrection isn't just about a distant future. It's about how you live now. And I want to just look at that in the book of Romans. So the first thought comes from Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 4 to 10. And I haven't captured all of those verses here. Um, let me just read 4 to 5 and then um, 10 and 11, actually. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, so you must also Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection means not only are you dead to sin through what Christ did for you on the cross, it means you are alive to God in Jesus. Uh, the long and the short of it is, is you don't have to sin anymore. We don't have to be bound to sin anymore. There is meant to be an empowered life 
for us. Uh, your culture, uh, the people around you, when you spot uh, evil tendencies in your heart, when you spot habits that you can't beat, when you come into, uh, in, into rea the reality of an addiction uh, that you're struggling with, the reality is, is that what Paul is hinting at here is that somehow the resurrection of Jesus, that life of him inside of you is supposed to mean you are no longer bound by that sin. It's not just your genetics. It's not just your personality. Uh, there are all, like, there are things to wrestle with. If you look at my life, my struggle uh, with food, I can have a tendency towards gluttony. I can have a tendency to want to eat my face off. And we can say, that's my grandpa. That is my genetics. That is the way I'm wired. That's just the way I am. That's my personality. But because of what Jesus has done, because he's alive in me, you know, that problem is, is still something I face every single week. But it's not the same as it used to be. It's not the same as it used to be. I can say no more easily than I ever have been able to in my life. And it has absolutely nothing to do with my strength of will. It has absolutely nothing to do with my ability as a person, it has absolutely nothing to do with my personality. It has something to do with the person of Jesus Christ living inside of me. Because I am dead to sin and alive to God. And with struggle and trial and wrestle, we begin walking more and more in that way and more and more in the reality of it. You aren't stuck. You are free. There's a journey of freedom for you because of what Christ has done for you, because he is alive. Uh, Romans 7, 4 to 6 reads like this. So you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We are released from the law having died, so that to which, sorry, died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. You know, in the past, uh, before the time of Christ, before his resurrection, what was given to us was the law. And now this is something to, you could spend a lot of time unpacking. Paul spends an enormous time talking about it in Romans as he talks uh, to people who are, uh, have a Jewish sort of a law legalistic background. It's not the same level at which we need to maybe think about it. But we can summarize it by simply saying uh, maybe this, uh, we get the carrot now and not the stick. We get the carrot now and not the stick. We were once... You know, living a life where you were guided by the restrictions, you were supposed to live in a certain way according to the way of God because of the fence that was around you. What the resurrection of Jesus Christ has done for you when it comes to overcoming sin and living an empowered life and living a fruitful life is that you're not guided by, you know, a, a fence that's around you saying, don't go this way, don't go that way. You are guided by a life that is living inside you, a model of a person, Jesus, who indwells you. And you can begin to live according to that voice, him speaking inside of you, him calling you forward, him revealing himself through the scriptures and him empowering you by the Holy Spirit. 
and you walk in freedom, not inside a fence, but under uh, the power of the Holy Spirit with the model of the person of Jesus in your eyes. To see him, to see his beauty, and to be in love with him and want to become like him. Because of the resurrection, because he's alive, we live in a, a completely different motivation. How much better is it to live chasing the carrot than running from the stick? Changes everything in terms of the freedom and joy uh, that you experience as you walk through the journey of life. And, and the reality is, is that the law has always failed us. But following the person of Jesus works. It works. Because he's alive and he's beautiful and, we, and we're made to chase after him. We're not constrained by legalism, but, by, but motivated by a model. And he who perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. So we follow him. Uh, the second thing, or the third thing, rather, that, that Paul understands that we're supposed to walk in because Jesus has risen, and this is, this is strange, we don't feel this every day, that's for sure, but is, uh, I think, a resilient physicality. Um, again, we talked about this with regards to um, our eternal life, our once receiving uh, resurrected bodies. So, so we talked that one. I'm going to say, yeah, we got that. But Romans 8.10 suggests something more present, something more immediate as well. Uh, 8, 10, and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so that's a present tense word that Paul's using, dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will, future tense, also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells presently in you. Present tense. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now, I don't know that I feel like that when I wake up in the morning before I've had two cups of coffee. <laughs> I don't know if you feel like that either, right? But I think what, what, what that's supposed to mean for us is that we are supposed to live life with unusual vigor. We're supposed to live life with an ability to expend ourselves more than uh, we think that we can do in our own natural strength. If you look at the life of Paul and, and his list of things that he underwent in order to share the gospel, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned. He was poisoned. He was bit by snakes. Uh, the whole deal, right? That man should have died a young man. The amount of pain, the amount of trauma, the amount of struggle that man, man went through. In different places, we hear stories of him uh, so passionate to preach the word of God that he's preaching through the night. Other people are falling asleep and falling outside the window. So he just raises that guy to the dead and keeps on, from the dead and keeps on preaching. Fun story in the gospel, right? There's this vigor inside him, like the passion. The gospel has to get out. The story has to get out. I have to tell it. I have to live for this thing. I have to live for the mission. I can push myself harder than I po can possibly imagine. I can do more than I thought I could do. I had this incredible experience um, with, uh, with a Ugandan pastor um, in, in my degree uh, in... Um, 
when I was in St. Stephen, New Brunswick, and, and it's a story that was relayed to me, uh, and I met actually the, a pastor who was um, pastored by this guy who was at the school before. But every now and then when you get to a, a school, and this is just sort of one of the amazing things about going to Bible school, is you can find yourself sitting beside a man who is 50 or 60 years old, you're an 18-year-old student, you're trying to learn what you can about the Bible, and you sit and ask this man what he's doing here and, and what, what, is, what he's here to learn, and you find out that he's a pastor of a hundred churches in Uganda, and he's here to just bone up on his scripture and learn and deepen his faith, and you're like, I'm standing in front of like a mega pastor here, and he's in my little Bible school class with me, and I feel like a worm. Um, but the story of a man like that named Bob Kayazo. Um, and he's listening to the teaching, and there's lots of teaching about Sabbath. Again, this is important. Lots of teaching about sustainability and teaching about rest. Again, this is important. And, uh, and he just sort of quietly, apparently, piped up in class and just simply said this. I have heard you say much about rest. But I have found that the gospel has made me rest less. The gospel produces in us a restlessness and a passion. We need holidays and vacations and, and just enormous amounts of time to regenerate ourselves and massages. And I don't want to make people feel guilty about taking uh, those things to rejuvenate and strengthen themselves. But I also want to push a little bit and say we have supernatural power and we can give more than we think. You can do more than you think. You can be invested in the kingdom more than you think. There are more hours in the day than you think. There's more strength in your muscles than you think. We have a mission to do together. And you're supernaturally empowered by the resurrection to do it. And that's what Paul believed he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And we see Paul sitting by the fire and a snake comes out and bites his hand, a poisonous viper. He rips it off and casts it into the fire and continues his journey. We can do more than we think. Romans 8.34. We are meant to have resilience a resilient connection to his love, a resilient relationship with him. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. What Paul is saying, that because of the resurrection, because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father for us, we are decoupled from our circumstances as it pertains to our joy. You can have joy, you have a sense of identity with him, you have passion, you have life, you have intimate, rich relationship with him in spite of famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword or persecution or distress. Those things don't separate us from him. I, I, I know in my life when, when bad things happen, I can sometimes be the first person to be like, oh, where's God? He doesn't love me. That's not how we're meant to live. We're meant to live with this incredible awareness of his love, incredible awareness of his forgiveness, incredible awareness of his presence. In spite of every circumstance, as we mature as Christians, as we grow in a mature understanding of the resurrection, our relationship with him is less and less affected by the circumstances around us. It says in Hebrews, behold, I'm giving you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.